You Godzilla, 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 come here. all you movie junkies and cinephiles it's time for the sls cast with your hosts matt and tim and welcome one and all to episode 145 of the sls cast yes ladies and gentlemen this would be nothing else other than the Grand Union Canal Race episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that the Grand Union Canal Race is a is an ultra marathon from Birmingham to London along the Grand Union Canal that happens to be exactly one hundred forty five miles. And with that little bit of ultra marathon knowledge, I of course am Matt, and coming to us all the way from sunny California. Where hopefully uh, there's not too much forest fire action near him would be our resident Sony employee. Ironically, today it was not sunny outside. And ironically, El Nino was about to wipe us off the face of the earth. Yes, the El Nino reigns of the tears of Ben Affleck. And this is Tim. Yeah, expecting rain, for those people that don't know. California jokes I'm making over here. Los Angeles jokes. We're expecting a lot of rain, and this year it's going to be the Katrina of Los Angeles. That is what people are billing El Nino this year. The Katrina of Los Angeles. Now, to me, that sounds a little offensive in a way. That's kind of like really reaching for the rafters on that one. The Katrina of Los Angeles. But I will say that if it is that bad out here, I would be okay with that. Because whenever something like a natural thing happens out here, like, oh, it's maybe five degrees warmer than it should be, or it's five degrees cooler than it should be, or that it's 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 like a light spritz outside, nobody goes outside. Everybody stays indoors closes their shutters. It's like they fortify their home so they don't have to be exposed to this, what they think is a, quote, radical change in the weather when it's just five degrees or so. So, yeah, Katrina-like weather coming soon. My name is Tim. How's it going? (laughs) Pretty good. Um... Yeah, well, uh, nothing so exciting apparently happening out here in Houston. Um, where, where? Uh, so, what city will you be relocating to if it is indeed uh, the Katrina that it has been described as? Because those who fled Katrina came to Houston, right? So, where do you think you'll fl- uh, you will flee to? If I should it come to that, if I had to choose anywhere. It would be San Diego, because I think everybody would go to... Well, actually, no, because I think if anybody might have it worse, it would be San Francisco. Because really, the water is supposed to... Or the rain's supposed to hit all of uh, uh, kind of central 
Los Angeles down to full on Southern or not Central Los Angeles, Central California full on to Southern California, and also the uh, Northern California is supposed to get a nice, uh, not nice mist of rain as well. So I, I think no matter where you go in California, you will you will drown. Um, so it will it will be like the day after tomorrow in California. Apparently, this is this is what this is how they're building this up to be. Everybody prepared, you know, uh, spend the spend uh, what, how, whatever you can with your family that's outside of the state because more than likely we're all going to die. And we're all just kind of coming to terms with that than actually preparing for it. Because apparently people going out and buying all the water in the store, that I mean, that's really all you need to prepare for a massive flood. So uh nowhere i get palm springs maybe arizona could be nice arizona's pretty nice that uh you know uh, late october early november so okay <laughs> where would you go to like is if if you had to leave the state of texas because i i mean everybody from houston everybody's going to go to dallas or san antonio or austin or head over to louisiana yeah but those are all in, well, with the exception of Louisiana. Those are all in Texas. Houston. If you had to leave Houston to go somewhere, <laughs> therefore you would have to go out of Texas because everybody would go everywhere else. So wh- where else would you go? Like, is there like a state that is kind of like your oh shit state? Like, oh shit, I have to get here because I'm going to die. Well, no, no. There, I mean. You're pretty much facing one. You're, you're constantly trading one natural disaster for another. Um, I guess about the best you could hope for would probably be mm, like Tennessee-ish, maybe Kentucky. Um, that would be statistically your best bet um, because you can still avoid like Tornado Alley and everything, but. Um, there's still like a major fault line that like nobody knows about. And it goes off like once every 200 years or so. And it's like, hasn't happened for a while yet. Hasn't been 200 years. I think it's been over 200 years. It was like the weirdest thing. They, one of the few recorded history things when they first started like westward expansion out that way. So you could still die no matter where you go. So I guess it doesn't really matter. Yeah, with our luck in California, it's probably going to be El Nino's going to happen. Then right in the middle of El Nino and the flooding or whatever. Then the big one, the big earthquake's going to happen. So it's going to be like, well, shit. Now I have to... I'm sorry. Hey, at least you've got the rock out your way, right? You can get you can get Mr. Johnson to go jump in his chopper and rescue you. Hold on. that I No, I, I, I am not going to be on his radar because he saved his family. <laughs> that is all that he saved in that movie was his family except that poor girl at the beginning of the movie when her car kind of went off the hollywood hills or the canyons or something like that now no the rock is single-minded he's he's family and and maybe civilians even though that is really in his job's description i would think but fair enough so anyways um i got some news of the weird would you like to hear some news of the week? Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. This actually, believe it or not, comes to us from Forbes, of all places. It's uh, Forbes.com. By way of 
David DeSalvo. A rose in a glass by any other name is a crack pipe. That was... You did, you, you did not hear wrong. Your ears dost not deceive thee. Getting gas at a local Chevron station... This, now, this is a narrative here from Mr. DeSalvo. Getting gas at a local Chevron station, I popped inside to buy a bottle of water and a newspaper. Standing in front of me in line was an attractive woman dressed in what might be best considered intentionally eye-catching cut-off shorts and a tight-fitting blouse accented with stiletto heels. This is screaming class so, so far. She brings to the counter something called a Chorboy, which is a brand of wool mesh pipe cleaner. You've seen these before, little round scrub pads one might use to clean dirty dishes. She then asks the clerk behind the counter for something I'd not heard of before, a rose in a glass. Now, if you've ever been to a you know, gas station convenience store, one of the, especially in the lower parts of town, uh, you'll notice them. They're in like a little box, and each one is about the size, uh, probably about a four inch vial, is what it looks like. And it's got just a little kind of like a paper mache rose inside in varying colors or whatever. And they're, yeah, and it's like corked at the bottom. So the clerk nods and asks, which color? The young lady smiles and says, it doesn't matter. The clerk pulls a small box from underneath the counter with an assortment of small glass tubes containing, containing various silk-colored roses. She randomly selects one and hands it to the young lady, who asks how much this odd item and her chore boy will cost. The total is around five seventy-five. The young lady pulls a handful of wrinkled bills from her pocket and mutters, expensive as she counts out what turns to be a dollar less than the total bill she tells the clerk wait a minute and walks out of the store toward a black ford mustang with pitch black tinted windows about a minute passes and then a man exits the car and walks into the store holding a credit card how much he asks the clerk who motions to the cashier display he slides his card through crumples the receipt when handed to him by the clerk and walks out with his chore boy and rose in a glass so the idea here is that you remove that lovely silk or paper mache rose from the glass vial and then you put your crack rocks inside the bottom and it becomes a crack pipe you then take the chore boy and you tear off a small portion and you uh push it into the tip uh you push that into the opening there of the vial which yes opening sounds better than tip you don't you you don't want to push anything into the tip (laughs) and it serves uh as a, a like a like a cigarette filter and so you've got your crack rock down at the bottom. You've got your you've got your crack pipe or, or rose in a glass, and then you've got your Brillo pad, i.e., chore boy, right there. And congratulations, you are now smoking crack in style. So next time you see one of those, now you know what it's for. Wow, Matt, uh, I think we just added a new demographic to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow! So now I'm gonna I'm gonna walk by Crack and Meth Heads. They're gonna be like, "Hey, you have a good show. We only listened to that one episode. You ruined our lives." 
<laughs> yes, Matt did. Well, yes. Well, that's yeah. But when when they approach you, all you have to do is just give them a free rose in a glass and be like, "Here, it's on me." Keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> do I put crack in it beforehand, or do I let them oh, supply I, their I, own I, crack? I, I have no. I have. Uh, no strong feelings one way or the other. <laughs> to crack or not to crack? That is the question. I think that was the original question that Bill Shakespeare was going to ask in that play. Indeed. Is whether if he should pack his pipe with crack and give it to somebody. or. But yeah, if, uh, if you ever wanted to know, if you ever wanted to buy a uh, pack of 36 chore boys, guess how much a pack of 36 cost? Uh, I have no idea. $59.54. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to smoke your crack on Still sounds a lot less expensive buying them in bulk, though. Because just the one chore boy and the rose in a glass was almost $6. So, you're now getting them for just like, you know, you're getting them for like a buck 18 or something when you buy them in the big pack like that. I know. Rip off. I, I think that's why they're counting on crackheads, you know, so doped up. You know how it is, Matt. I know you're really big into crack and stuff. How you look at something and you really don't think about it and you're like, ooh, a pack of 36 chore boys. I really need that. That price makes sense. Not. And you, you buy them. That's how they get you. The Matt train of thought. Hmm. Are you not on crack anymore? Did you give that up? Oh, boy, that was an excellently phrased question. That's right up there with, do you still beat your girlfriend? (laughs) He beats me every night. (laughs) Why do you think I moved to California? Ah, yes. Yes. Anyway, so how about we do real news? Yes, preferably entertainment movie-related news. All right, here we go, folks. It's the news. First up from me, from HollywoodReporter.com, by way of Kim Masters and Matthew Baloney. Uh, Marvel shakeup film chief Kevin Feige breaks free of CEO Ike Perlmutter. As of August 31st, 2015, this was an exclusive for them. After Feige's years of frustration, the studio's... I'm sorry, let me reread that correctly. After Feige's, quote, years of frustration, end quote, the studio's movie group will now report to Disney's Alan Horn. You heard that right, folks. After what one source describes as, quote, several years of frustration, end quote, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige has pulled off a reorganization of the vaunted film company that has him reporting to Disney studio chief Alan Horn, as opposed to the infamously micromanaging Marvel Entertainment CEO Isaac Ike Perlmutter. Fage, the architect of Marvel's transition from flailing comic book company into a film powerhouse that was sold to Disney for $4 billion in 2009, is said to have vented his unhappiness to Horn and Disney CEO Bob Iger earlier this summer. The reorganization was put into effect last week, according to sources. The revamp is a blow to New York-based Perlmutter, a low-profile billionaire who has contributed to Marvel's reputation in Hollywood for frugality and secrecy. 
Jeff Leib, head of Marvel Television, continues to report to Perlmutter, who will manage, who will maintain oversight of Marvel's TV group, publishing, animation, and other New York-based operations. Wow. What do you think, Tim? Do you think this is going to make Marvel movies better, perchance? Do you think that uh, maybe it wasn't... Maybe maybe some of the flack that you've been giving a lot of the Marvel movies has come from the way that Marvel's organization works so that Kevin Feige hasn't been able to do exactly everything that he's been wanting to do due to Perlmutter's involvement? Or do you think that... Uh, it will get worse that maybe Perlmutter was reigning in Phage. No, I think, if anything, it'll be for the best. Now, will it make the movies more enjoyable for me? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I really, really don't know. I think it all depends on how much, uh, if, if more creative power will be given to the director like with Edgar Wright, uh, one of the articles, it might have been a part of one of the articles that you were mentioning, but, but I was reading about how one of the reasons why Edgar Wright decided to part ways with directing Ant-Man is because of uh, that one guy was butting heads with Edgar Wright. Like he wasn't giving, or Edgar Wright wanted more, not necessarily more of a say-so, but he wanted to implement his vision. He wanted to do his vision of the movie, and the other guy wouldn't let him. And I don't, I don't know if, if it was all because of the other guy or if it was because of Figgy also. I, I'm guessing we're not going to be able to tell anything with Captain America's Civil War. It'll probably have to be for whatever the next Marvel movie is. Thor Ragnarok, I think, one of those. So I don't know. I, have, cool. I don't know. We'll see. I hope. Right on, right on. What do you got for us, sir? All right. First up, from thehollywoodreporter.com. New Mary Poppins movie in the works from Disney. That's right. This is written by Boris Kitt. The new story will be set around 20 years after the tale of the classic 1964 movie. Disney will once again say the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. More than 50 years after Mary Poppins flew on her umbrella into the hearts of moviegoers, Disney is developing a new live-action Poppins movie, The Hollywood Reporter has confirmed. The news story will be set around 20 years after the tale of the classic 1964 movie that starred Julie Andrews and Dick Van Dyke. It will also take its cues from the book series that P.L. Travers wrote. Rob Marshall, who directed Into the Woods and Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides for the studio, will helm the new feature, which will also be a musical. David Magee, who wrote Life of Pi, is on board to write the screenplay. And as detailed in Disney's Saving Mr. Banks, Travers had a testy relationship with Walt Disney over the adaption of the original, but the studio is working with her estate on the new movie. So, uh, yeah, Matt, you brought up the uh, concern that how will the estate of P.L. Travers allow Disney to make a sequel due to her uh, restrictions on the rights and whatnot? Well, it looks like they're working that out. I don't know. What do, what do you think, Matt? Do you think this is right to go beyond her wishes do you think that it kind of shows you a little bit how uh, disney is just really kind of reaching for the money and not really taking into consideration the well wishes of travers well i have to say that uh, yeah i know this is what we're talking about because it doesn't all outside of saying it's working with 
her estate. That's just really interesting because uh, the reading that I've done was she specifically put it into her will that whoever gets the estate or whoever she could not sell it to Disney. So this is kind of interesting. I don't know if they've figured out some kind of workaround uh, that, you know, like maybe it's just on paper that it's going to some newfangled company that Disney just happens to own. <laughs> that wasn't listed as Disney or something. I don't know. Um, but the thing is, is that while I certainly, I mean, it's it's one of those terrible things because on sheer principle, you should honor her request. However, I mean, you can't argue, you simply can't argue with 50 years of, uh, of love and success from the Mary Poppins film. And yes, I know it is so drastically different from the source material. The actual books are darker in tone than the movie ever was. But I don't know. I think she was wrong. You know, it's her work, and on principle, she said no. But, ah, man, I'm sorry, dude. She was wrong, and I'm, 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 I'm not gonna lie. I'm looking forward to it if it's real. So, are you familiar with the books at all? Like any of the stories? I, I have not read the books myself. I do. My dad, however, did read the books when he was younger, and he says uh, that they are, in fact darker in tone it's not uh, they're not and when i say darker i don't mean that you know people die and it's it's horror or anything like that but it's definitely more traditional hansel and gretel traditional cinderella than she the eats Disney the children version. if they are naughty <laughs> exactly but um it's interesting though because it it does the 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 movie Saving Mr. Banks kind of gets a little closer to the heart of the books, which, and you can kind of see how really and truly kind of sad those, that her story was and the relationship with her dad actually was. So, um, there's, there's a lot more of that aspect into it, into the books, but yeah, I don't, I'm just, I don't know. I'm just kind of, it, it just, it just feels too much like a cash grab. And what I know and love from Mary Poppins, I just don't know if, if they could even come close to replicating that same kind of, that same feeling nowadays. Just something so pure See, and nice. But and... you, you did not, as I recall, totally trash Cinderella. Oh, no. The, the live action remake. Not at all. And that was even older than Mary Poppins. And animated. Like, straight up animated. So, I think that it's... Um, of course, of course, they're going to do it for the money. Now, I love Cinderella. But maybe. But maybe. To do some Louis... To do, some, to do a little bit of Louis C.K. here. But maybe... It's okay for them to go for the money because we all know we're going to watch it. So, <laughs> I, I I think it's going to be okay. I have high hopes for this one. Well, before that, we'll be getting our 
Beauty and the Beast live action rendition and our Mulan live action rendition. So, do you think she'll be a lesbian in in the live action movie? In in Mulan, Mulan? yeah, a lesbian. Uh, I I don't know. Oh, okay, like, okay. So the TV series Once Upon a Time. Uh huh. That that they is from ABC, so basically it's all Disney and and Disney works all of their movies, all of their animated movies into oh, it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'm they made Mulan gay. They made one yeah, gay. They had Mulan. Yeah, Mulan was. Does gay. it work? Or, I mean, I, I presume you watch it at least. I watched it uh, up and I watched it up until the fourth season. Uh, they introduced Elsa into the fourth season. And Anna and Kristoff or whatever. And I watched the first four or five episodes of that season. And I kind of lost patience with it. So <laughs> I didn't watch it after that. <laughs> but I watched it up through then. And Mulan was in there. So, yeah. You know, what's up? Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. Last up from me here from Reuters.com. Or Reuters, sorry, dot com. Or Reuters, if you're going to go by how it's spelled. But we all know it's actually Reuters. Uh, from the entertainment division, uh, by way of Davika Krishna Kumar and Maju Samuel, Spielberg's DreamWorks to split from Disney via the Hollywood Reporter. Uh, DreamWorks Studios, the film company co-founded by Steven Spielberg, will split from Walt Disney Company after the release of his film The BFG. The Hollywood Reporter said, citing people familiar. With the matter, the Oscar-winning director's likely future home is Universal and is in talks with the company, the trade publication reported. Uh, Spielberg's take on the BFG, based on British author Ronald Dahl's 1982 book, is scheduled for release on July 1st. so I guess that's going to be a little while. Uh, a spokesperson for Disney declined to comment. Universal Studios and DreamWorks did not respond to request for comment. Quote, the studio would welcome the chance to be DreamWorks' distribution partner. End quote. But any deal is premature, a source at Universal was quoted as saying. Um, basically, what the, the DreamWorks signed a long-term exclusive agreement Back in 2009, there was going to be lending to DreamWorks in the amount of at least $150 million. Disney would get 8% of the fee off the box office gross. And it ended up that Disney uh, distributed 11 films and provided loans totaling $156 million as of September of this year. But in the third quarter... That ended on my birthday, June 27th. There were no DreamWorks titles released, compared with three releases a year earlier. So, I don't know. Universal's on a high. They've hit uh, $2 billion at the box office, right? And Disney isn't exactly far behind. But is this move simply because they think they can get a better deal through, say, Universal? Or is this deal... Or is this move simply because it's time to move on? What do you think, Tim? Is this even a good idea? Should, I mean, because DreamWorks has been uh, has been uh, struggling as of late. Yeah, I mean, so, everything about DreamWorks has been struggling for the past few years. 
So, and it's funny. It's so funny because DreamWorks did so well for such a long period of time. And I don't mean like they were producing like hit after hit after. Well, actually, no, uh, DreamWorks was, but DreamWorks SKG, they do all the animated stuff. Uh, They did Ants. Ants was their big hit. And then eventually they did Shrek. And the first two Shrek movies were huge. And then the third and the fourth one were kind of, they were still kind of hits, but still on the lower scale of the box office. But after that, they haven't really had another franchise that's been trying to keep them afloat. And they haven't been doing well. Same thing with the live action, uh, with regular DreamWorks. I mean, back in the day... Spielberg was releasing, you know, Saving Private Ryan, Minority Report, all that stuff was DreamWorks. And you don't, I mean, there was a period of time where almost every big movie, maybe not almost every big movie, but so many big movies that are really good had that damn kid on the DreamWorks sign fishing up in the sky, you know, doing that thing. So, I mean, it's just kind of, and then now you don't really see that anymore. Every once in a while you do, but not much. So, yeah, I think they're just trying to stay afloat and try to come up with the next thing. Because I tell you what, I mean, I've worked with people that worked over at DreamWorks, and it was rough for them. They were really scrambling around to figure out what was going on. Because over the past couple years, DreamWorks has been laying off a ton of people. So, in some way, this definitely makes sense. It's not a good sign, though. Right on. Well, that's uh, that's my news. So, bring us home, sir. Okay, doke. I'm going to end with two small pieces of news uh, because there's one that I want to ask Matt's opinion on. From HollywoodReporter.com, Paramount VOD service Mubai sign licensing deal. I think it's called Mubai. It's M-U-B-I, so I guess it could be Mubai. (laughs) This is written by Alex Rittman. The multi-year agreement comes just two months after Mubi signed up with Sony Just two months after it signed up with Sony, curated video-on-demand platform Mubi has announced another major studio licensing deal, this time with Paramount. The multi-year deal adds a selection of various titles such as No Country for Old Balls, I mean, No Country for Old Men, Mission Impossible, Revolutionary Road, Roman Holiday, and Zoolander to the UK-based company's growing and mostly independent library, now available in more than 200 countries. Uh, in more than 200 countries. Financial terms weren't disclosed. Quote, following a really successful summer, this new deal continues to show tremendous momentum in our growth and unique ability to offer curated and compelling films, end quote, said founder and CEO Effie Carcarell. Quote, working with Paramount Pictures is just one of the latest of great partnerships we have developed, which include festivals, major studios, and distribution platforms, and we are looking forward to welcoming the Coen brothers to the platform, end quote, he said. In July, the firm signed its first theatrical deal, which will see it release Miguel Gnome's Khan's Bowing three-parter Arabian Nights in cinemas in partnership with New Wave Films. Speaking to The Hollywood Reporter earlier this month, Kakarol revealed that the company was expecting to make similar acquisitions going forward and have an active presence in festival markets. End all quotes. I wanted to read that to you guys because I just think that's kind of interesting. These are big studios moving towards, and this isn't DreamWorks we're talking about, this is Paramount Pictures. You know, we they have Mission Impossible, 
They have the Star Trek franchise, and they're wanting to move into VOD services. This goes to show that a lot of big studios are wanting to go more into VOD and digital. Move away from physical Blu-rays and DVDs and whatnot. They want you to use your UV codes and watch everything via your internet connection on your TV, on your laptop, on your phone. That is the direction we are obviously moving towards. And this is another pretty big step towards that. Whether that's good or bad, make your own decisions with that. But personally, I like having my physical copy of my of my Criterion Blu-ray in my hand. So while I'm watching the movie for the fifth time, I can go through and read the essay packet that they have inside. Kind of like the liner notes of, of an album. You know, they have their essays. But lastly, real quick, to wrap up the news, and Matt would love to hear your comment on this one if you have a comment on this. King Kong, this is from Deadline.com, King Kong on move to Warner Brothers, presaging Godzilla monster mashup. This is written by Mike Fleming Jr. Exclusive, in a movie move that portends a clash of giant monsters... Legendary Pictures' Thomas Toll is moving his untitled Skull Island King Kong film to Varner Brothers. This is being done to unite the property with Legendary's other giant franchise, Godzilla. In what would be a pretty epic pairing, the Godzilla sequel that is in the works will be followed by a movie that pits the giant ape versus the giant fire-breathing reptile. I'm told this is happening very quickly, with moves going all the way to Japan, where Godzilla writes... Holder's Toho is based. Legendary, which moved from Warner Brothers to Universal, had developed the Skull Island filmed at the latter studio. It is unclear at the moment what Universal's position will be, but I heard the studio move is being done because it is just easier to have all the pieces under one roof. Something that Marvel Studios has done with superheroes like the Hulk. King Kong is in the public domain while Legendary got the Godzilla rights from Toho. End all quotes there. So we have Kong Skull Island uh, coming up pretty soon. It's in development at Universal, but uh, now it's going over to Warner Brothers. But who knows if Universal is still going to have a hand in it or not. Uh, I, hopefully it does, because they did a damn good job with Peter Jackson's King Kong, I thought. And then over at Warner Brothers, they obviously have Godzilla. It's not going to happen until Godzilla 2, Gareth Edwards's sequel to his first Godzilla remake. Uh, Matt, what do you think? Do you want to see a Godzilla versus King Kong movie? Because for one thing, they're going to have to make Godzilla, or excuse me, they're going to have to make King Kong pretty big to fully match up, to rival the Godzilla of Gareth Edwards' uh, rendition from a year or so ago. Because that Godzilla was fucking huge. And really, King Kong isn't quite that big. What do you think? Is that is this a good move or not? Or do you think this was kind of going to happen regardless? Um, well, I mean, you never know. Uh, you had a lady get her face eaten off by an orangutan, right? So uh, you've also had people, you know, beat up by chimpanzees. And you could get clawed to death by a spider monkey. So they don't necessarily have to grow King Kong, you know, into as large of... A creature as Godzilla, but they probably should. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously, seriously though, 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've I was always a fan of, you know, Godzilla versus Mothra and all that kind of stuff, and, and those are those are fun movies. Um, so it would be interesting, I think. Or uh, let me rephrase that: it could be interesting. Um, I, I truly, I don't know. I don't know really how I feel about it. I. I it's just not it's just it to me like you, it's not an obvious pairing because they are so drastically different. So I don't know. See, my thing I is that know. like I can see them having great you know epic action battle scenes in a city or wherever very much like the Godzilla movie from last year where the action was great, Godzilla was awesome and had some really cool moments. But when it came to the human actors, like the human plot, it sucked. And I think that is going to be their biggest obstacle is coming up with the human plot to really be the basis of these two monsters fighting. Because, I mean, you you can't have giant monsters fighting for two and a half hours without something to really kind of bring it together. If not, then somebody is failing as a studio executive out there. Well, I'm thinking, okay, what if we start off with Godzilla um, has resurfaced in the city and they are able to successfully draw Godzilla away from the city in the ocean and get him to swim away? You, Godzilla, 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 come here. And he, and he, and Godzilla is is chased away or whatever, um, and then finds itself on Skull Island. <laughs> One lizard your... ended up on the wrong side of town. Yeah, so there, 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 there's your plot right there. So you get your human interaction, which is the kickoff, and then, yeah. And then you could literally, oh my god, how amazing would it be though? Because simultaneously, while they are trying to get rid of Godzilla after having after after Godzilla's resurfacing, they're literally redoing the first half of King Kong, right? You've got this expedition out to Skull Island where the natives have long told of this, you know, forbidden uh, zone where King Kong lives, and then they, so they encounter King Kong, and as they are trying to work out how to get King Kong back, because they're just that stupid and crazy, just like they've always been. That's when Godzilla has been successfully pushed away and finds finds itself back on, uh, or finds itself on Skull Island. And that's where you have your big climactic battle. Because... I don't know. I think we should merge uh, merge the properties of Godzilla, King Kong, and Demolition Man together. <laughs> when all of a sudden, out of the volcano emerges Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that would be actually, I don't know, because that's a plausible, for me anyway, that's a, that's a very plausible way to have limited human development for the film that then provides for a way to get King Kong and Godzilla to fight one another. Yeah, and I think... See, okay, I, I, I like that. I like the idea of no humans. 
I love you, Ken Watanabe, but uh, you did not impress me in Godzilla. You did not. But the idea of something that that like with with limited, very limited dialogue, and something more on the lines of like Peter Jackson, Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, Castaway, artsy kind of look and feel to it. I can dig that. Maybe directed by oh shit, who did Life of Pi? God, Ang Lee. Ang Lee, directed by Ang Lee. <laughs> and that's my news. All right. Well, that will conclude our news and bring us to Thirty Square. <laughs> Yes, and this week's three squared is our picks for the for for unique, not necessarily the most unique or, or, or our favorite or anything, but just three picks for each of us of unique self-reflexive films. And films that are again self-aware or that acknowledge the existence of the medium within itself. So, to a certain extent, like a movie within a movie or something like that. But basically... Or where they're making a movie about the movie that you're watching. Exactly. There you go. So, things of that nature. Um, So, I have three that I think are pretty interesting picks. Um, And they are self-aware... And yet, and also exist as a unique film or stage medium within itself. And yet, for one of these picks, which is my first pick, it's literally just the end. So, spoilers abound, folks. Hopefully you've seen these movies. And if not, well, then I hope you don't mind. I hope you have the Johnny White trash thing where you don't care if it's spoiled. If it's still something you want to see, you're going to see it. Uh, First up for me is Sunset Boulevard, the 1950 American. uh, It's black comedy slash drama film noir, basically. This is about a young lady, well, actually a former young lady who is who was a silent film star who is trying to who believes rather that she is going to be resurrecting her career with the help of a down on his luck scriptwriter and her ever faithful servant um the movie is actually uh it has a very um Oh, God. What's the American Beauty, right? Is that it? The one with Kevin Spacey? Yes. Yes, okay. It it has a very American Beauty uh, reminiscence to it, because sadly, in today's day and age, I don't know too many people who have seen Sunset Boulevard, so I have to kind of do it the other way around. Um, Where it starts off with uh, with, with, with our buddy Joe dead, 
and explaining how he got there. He himself explains how he got there. The thing is, though, is that while this while this film is about the loss of fame and dealing with that, and also the work that gets done in putting scripts together and building uh, a movie in Hollywood in the 50s, um, it's the end of the film that really becomes self-reflexive. As the flashback, of which basically is the entirety of the movie, comes to an end, we find that um, Norma, who is played by Gloria Swanson, has completely lost her mind. She is gone off the edge. She has fallen down the cliffs of insanity. And she's been found out as the murderess that she is, but when the film crews show up, the the newsreel people are there and the police are there, she thinks it's actually a recreation in her mind of an actual film set that she then performs to the crowd and the cameras as an actual character in a movie where she descends this grand staircase. And for for everyone uh, who's ever even remotely heard of the phrase, you know, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, right? The actual quote is, uh, all right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. But it's basically her about to be arrested for murdering Joe. It's a really, really interesting... It was, it's almost like a parody of TMZ today, but 65 years ago. It's really, really fascinating to watch and is one of the few times that I've ever actually been almost fooled by the vaguest idea of a movie within a movie, even though there's really no movie being made. Um, But the whole film is wrapped around the idea of a movie getting made and the kinds of things that go into a movie getting made, Uh, ultimately leading to, you know, people saying as as she's lost her mind and is on her way to be arrested, you know, lights, camera, action. It's it's amazing. And this movie was nominated for a slew of Oscars back in the day and is considered one of the greatest films of all time. So definitely check this one out. It's really, really good. Uh, next up for me is probably one of the funniest movies I have ever seen. Um, I absolutely enjoy this film because my limited stage experience from when I was young and full of piss and vinegar and verve and all that kind of stuff, um, it really takes me back to this. And this movie is Noises Off, 1992 comedy film directed by Peter uh, Bogdanovich. 
And it stars a whole bunch of really amazing people that you've heard of and know and love. Michael Caine, Carol Burnett, Denholm Elliott, John Ritter, Christopher Reeve, Mary Lou Henner, Julie Haggerty. So, I mean, these are great, great comedic actors and actresses. Awesome, just generally very good actors and actresses. And this is the idea where you were watching a play as it is beginning to be performed. And the idea of noise is off means this is when you're silent backstage because the play is going live. So you are set up to a treatment of the play and you're watching kind of like a dress rehearsal as they are working their way towards Broadway with this particular play. And so you see the play in and of itself unfold while you're watching backstage and the people and all these actors and actresses who to varying degrees like or dislike one another and how these personal interactions affect the goings on on stage as the dress rehearsal completes. And then the movie cuts, literally cuts away, fades to black halfway through and then comes to where you're like basically now watching them in a fast forward on time or fast forward through time and now you watch the play as it goes live while it is falling apart backstage. And yet you're watching the play within a play while you're watching the movie. And to see these character dynamics work with these actors, playing actors backstage, who then play characters on stage while they hate each other and while they try to maintain the facade of the stage except they're backstage sabotaging one another it's fucking hilarious it is so so funny and so amazing to watch this unfold um it it got mixed reviews overall when it first came out but i for one absolutely adore this film i think it's amazing and I highly recommend it. This is one of my uh, always have to watch it. Um, and, and by that, I mean, it's always fun to grab somebody. You've never seen this movie? Have a seat. So definitely check that one out as well. Last but not least is a film that I personally um, think is really just kind of okay. But it is kind of an interesting way of looking at how the movie business works in terms of trying to make a movie with people who have established themselves uh, in a format that is no more, and that would be via the mafia. Uh, If you think about films like... um, Oh primarily uh, Deep Throat, right? That was uh, financed with mob money and while was definitely designed to be a porno, uh, ended up being a huge mainstream success and is generally regarded as the exception to the rule, which is fine, but this film also kind of wants to follow that formula. And this movie would be, of course, 2005's Be Cool, which is a sequel, actually, to Get Shorty, a movie about a guy who, about Chili Palmer, played by uh, John Travolta, who goes to Hollywood to try and more or less make it uh, in the world of Hollywood. This is the film that kind of is basically the subsequent effort uh, 
and all the things that go into it. Um, the movie in and of itself, what makes it unique is basically just the the way that it goes about trying to achieve the end goal of making a movie in Hollywood the way that they go about making this movie. And so you do kind of have the self-aware movie within a movie aspect, but they tried to put too many... They, they, they tried while doing this unique plot to recreate all of the things that made Get Shorty good, and it just didn't play well. So it is a very unique way of looking at it, but uh, and, and I do feel that it hits the mark as far as self-reflexive goes. But, it, yeah, I just kind of fall on this one's a little bit more of the unique than something that is also something I really and truly enjoy. So at the end of the day, We've got Sunset Boulevard from 1950, Noises Off from 1992, and Be Cool from 2005 as my picks for some unique self-reflexive movies. What do you got there, Tim? All right, so real quick, if you still don't know what self-reflexive means when it comes to cinematic self-reflexivity, I'm quoting something from uh, an article, or I guess these are a couple classroom terms for the cinephile out there and i do not know what the source is it is something that i've had in my notebook for a long time yet i do not remember where i got it from Uh, but it says this that there are depending on what you study or how you study or how you are taught film but according to this one there are two types of self-reflexivity in cinema, you have the comic self-reflexivity and the didactic or didactic self-reflexivity. Now, with comic self-reflexivity, films in this mode tend to wink at the camera to a humorous end. Characters speak to the camera. Think, you know, like The Office, for example. They employ a camp, a mock over seriousness that yields humor, outrageous wit or dark humor. Think of like Austin Powers or even Kill Bill. The self-reflective mode works well for comedy because it promotes the intimate relationship with an audience that is integral to effective humor. They invite the audience to play along. And for the didactic self-reflexivity, this mode is used for didactic or instructive purposes and falls within the aesthetic tradition that stimulates social action and reform. It is often self-important, though not arching into comedic self-reflexivity. End all quotes there. So again, those are two kind of rough examples of the different kinds of self-reflexivity, but depending on how you define it and how you look at it and how in-depth you want to go into it, there's a lot of different subcategories as well. But when it comes down to it, self-reflexivity means that the movie makes it apparent that you are watching a movie. You're not there to really learn anything. There's not real super crazy drama into it. You're there to, you're there to watch a movie and it is very apparent that you are watching a movie. And so my three movies that I find use the genre or the way of self-reflexivity 
the most uh, most uniquely are these three. Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986, Adaptation from 2002, and Blazing Saddles from 1974. I'm a little, not in order, not in chronological order right there, but whatever. I'm actually going to save the middle one for last because I am going to go into a little bit more in depth on that one. Um, the first one I'm going to talk about is Blazing Saddles, the classic Mel Brooks film from 1974. Everybody knows it. It's the satirical Western that he made uh, that, well, a lot of people thought it was offensive. But it is fantastic satire of all the great cowboy movies mixed with social commentary of race relations that were going on in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, where you have... The, the heavy use of the N-word used by both whites and blacks. And it's it's very interesting. And the movie itself is well made. The comedy in it is spot on. And it is great satire. If you've never seen it, you have to watch it immediately. Again, this was directed by Mel Brooks. It was written by uh, Mel Brooks, Andrew Bergman, Norman Steinberg, Al Uger, and... What a lot of people don't realize this is that Richard Pryor also had a hand in writing portions of the script as well. So you have people from all different types of backgrounds and ethnicities that came together and created this movie, pretty much. And it was very interesting. And so throughout the movie, especially whenever Cleavon Little, he is the black man that becomes uh, the black sheriff... And, and every time some and and they're very racist. They're very very racist. And every time somebody comes up to him and calls him the N word to his face, or just says something that we as an audience outside of this movie would probably find so offensive, he just kind of laughs at them and looks directly at the audience, just basically showing you that it's not worth taking offense because these people are morons. They are stupid. They are the ones that look dumb. And they were the ones that are going out of their way to be that offensive to this one guy. It doesn't even matter if he's the sheriff or not. They still went out of their way to do it. And that's a good idea of kind of, in a way, it's it's breaking the fourth wall. I mean, he's not directly talking to the audience as Ferris Bueller does in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. There is some dialogue between him and the audience, but it's mainly just little, like, winks, little glances, little, you know, looks of, the little, as a matter of fact, type looks, and maybe the comment or the, you know, uh, the judgmental comment every once in a while of, man, 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 all the hate, all the hate. You know, just stuff like that. But where the, the use of self-reflexivity is, I think, best. One of the best absolute uses of it is at the very end scene where there's the great cowboy fight. You know, the cowboys are getting shot left to right. The old woman is beating up all the guys. All the, all the, all the tough, rusky guys are all afraid of the old woman. And just all this stuff is going on and the camera zooms out. And all of a sudden, you see the back lot of Warner Brothers Studios. So, right there, it's acknowledging that you're watching a movie, if you didn't already know that by the end of the movie, and that they're shooting this on a back lot, and the camera pans over, you see more of the studio, and then all of a sudden, as the music swells up the very country, not country, but the very western, grandiose, Hail Mary music is kind of reaching the peak, the camera zooms in, 
to one of the studios, and Dom DeLuise is playing this flamboyantly gay musical director that are he is directing these gay men to this musical number called The French Mistake. And as the you know, they're they're performing and singing, and it's this very all of them are in top hats and penguin coats and whatnot, and He's getting pissy at them because they can't land their feet in the right spot. Then all of a sudden, the cowboys just bust through the wall. And the fight that was happening at that western town is now happening in the middle of the big gay musical number. And all the men in the chorus are getting involved. And it is absolutely hilarious. And then the fight moves from the big gay musical number into the commissary of the Warner Brothers studios. And that's where the pie fight happens. And just, it just, it's absolutely hilarious. And I think that is one of the best uses of self-reflexivity in any film, period. Or at least maybe that type. Um, Another film is the Charlie Coffin written movie directed by Spike Jones from 2002 called Adaptation. This was with Meryl Streep, Chris Cooper, who I believe he got the uh, Best Supporting Actor Academy Award for his role in Adaptation. And Nicolas Cage is in this movie as well. This is actually based, loosely based on a book written by Meryl Streep's character named Susan Orlean's book, The Orchard Thief, which it was a nonfiction book. And it was about her exposing this, uh, what is he, not a herbalologist, uh, a habotologist, something like that. But the one who studies flowers and cherishes flowers, he's actually selling one of, like a very rare flower, just illegally digging them up and selling, selling them off. But this isn't a direct adaption or adaptation of her book, The Orchard Thief. No, there are various self-referential events that are added into this film. And one of the most obvious events that was added in this film is is Charlie Kaufman's brother, Donald Kaufman. And in the movie, Charlie Kaufman wrote himself in this movie. He plays a screenwriter, a self-loathing screenwriter, who is tasked to write the screenplay based off of uh, Susan Orlean's book. And the movie takes place, you know, during the present time, I guess, with Charlie Kaufman trying to write the book. And also, as a flashback with Susan Orlean, uncovering what is going on with uh, uh, with this guy, with the hopologist, hobotologist, herbologist, hobotmodologist, whatever. Um, but at the same time, it shows you the making of being John Malkovich as well. But what really makes this movie self-reflexive is the absurdity of Charlie Kaufman writing his own brother, his own fake brother, (laughs) into this movie to become his counterpart. That in itself makes this movie self-reflective because he takes the book of The Orchard Thief, doesn't make a direct adaption of it, but he pretty much makes a stylized, self-referential parallel to that book in the form of writing himself into that into this movie i don't that was probably very confusing i apologize but if you've seen the movie you would understand how confusing it kind of is once you start really thinking about it so charlie kaufman's adaptation from 2002 is my second film and then finally from 1986 june 11th of 1986 
is the John Hughes classic Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, if you want a crash course in how to make a successful movie that can break the fourth wall so well and so smoothly, this is a good movie to study because Ferris Bueller is not only the lead character in the movie, but he is also the audience narrator. And for those of you who are not familiar with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, five-year-olds, I mean, you've got to be five years old if you're not familiar with this one, Ferris Bueller just basically decides to take a day off from school with two of his good friends, his girlfriend and his best friend. They decide to take the day off and spend the, the afternoon just kind of doing crazy stuff about town and having fun. And during the movie, he talks to the audience. And this is where the self-reflectiveness comes from. And now I'm going to be quoting from a film essay here written by Jens Shriver. This was copyrighted in 1996. Uh, This is from a film class, again from 1996, written by Jens Shriver, in case I forget to mention this again at the end. Uh, But it says this. I'm just going to read a couple little selections here. The film style becomes obvious early on when as soon as the other characters are off screen, Ferris addresses the camera. The viewer is drawn in and spoken to so as to feel as one of the characters and not as a mere spectator. This technique, which is used throughout the film, also makes the audience aware that these are not events from real life, but rather scenes from a movie meant to entertain, not show a, quote, slice of life, end quote. The understanding of the illusion is enhanced very early on, with the use of titles to complement Ferris's words on, quote, faking out parents, end quote. As he gives his tips to the viewers, they are typed on the screen, as in an educational video, once again reminding the audience that this is, quote, just a movie, end quote, that had to be made just like we are aware that an educational program had to be made. And then the article, or then the essay goes on to comment on the choice of making the camera a character as well in the movie. Making the ca- the camera as in, I guess, you the audience, one of the characters as well. Which, if you think about it, if you didn't have this aspect of the movie, the movie would not feel the same at all because you are drawn into the movie you are brought into the movie you are you are in on the jokes and it makes that movie that much more entertaining uh so they go on to talk about the camera used as a character throughout the movie this is particularly reminiscent of buster keaton style in sherlock jr as ferris gives us a what am i to do now look when the joke is over and he doesn't see a way out of the situation Similar to this is the end of Sherlock Jr., when Keaton follows the film within the film until finally he gets stuck as well, giving the viewer that bewildered look, which provokes laughter. In addressing the camera, Ferris goes further than Keaton did in actually forming an interactive relationship with the audience, asking a question about the car, pausing as if to wait for our response, and then saying, quote, Neither would I. And all quotes there. Uh, those are just brief selections from a film essay from 1996 about the uh, reflexivity in film. So yeah, I think that sums up in a nutshell why Ferris Bueller's Day Off fits perfectly well in the self-reflexivity 
genre of cinema. Yeah, so those were my three films. First off, I did uh, Blazing Saddles, Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. My second choice was 2002's Adaptation, written by Charlie Kaufman, directed by Spike Jones. And then finally, from 1986, John Hughes's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And that's my three squared. Cool. All right, well, next week we are going to do another three squared. This time we're going to be doing Best Final Movie Lines. That's right, folks. The movies that send you off with the coolest fucking lines you can think of. <clears throat> so, yeah, we'll be doing three picks for cool movie lines or whatever next week. And thus concludes Three Squared and brings us to... The Movies! <laughs> folks this week we've got the visit uh 2015 film uh we've got aloha and then von ryan's express where do you want to start sir you know what why don't we do something different this time and go with the best one von ryan's express i sincerely hope that you are being serious (laughs) yeah no i i definitely trust me i am being dead serious (laughs) okay good because this movie it's like the third five-star movie of the year for me. Um, I can't believe I hadn't seen this before. I am so disappointed in myself for not having had seen this. I could not believe I've not seen this before. Um, this is a fantastic movie uh, based on a book, actually. And uh, a book of the same name. And it is... Uh, a film about a colonel who gets shot down in Italy in World War II, gets captured and is in a POW camp, and then this subsequent um, escape via train <laughs> that happens over the course of the film. Uh, this is Frank Sinatra's um, highest grossing film, and... Uh, it's just a, a an absolute masterpiece in terms of World War Two era filmmaking, um, or let me rephrase that: movies about the World War Two era in film. Um, such a great cast that you have here, but it's primarily consists of uh, Frank Sinatra and Trevor Howard. But you also have great uh, guys. You've got German officers like. Uh, played by Wolfgang Price and stuff like that. You also have, um, oh, uh, oh gosh, uh, Major Basilo Batigla, played by Adolfo Celli, or Celli, who is just great. You've got great good guys, great villains, great people who are ambiguous as to are they good or are they bad. Um, you've got excellent action and... Um, a film that actually drifts just far enough from the book that if you're someone who wants to go back and read the book, you will actually have something to truly compare it to. Uh, this is, I mean, the, God, this is just so good. I don't even, I mean, everything about, I don't have any complaints. I truly do not have any complaints. This is a movie that is 50 years old and has aged amazingly well and has superb special effects, great cinematography, 
and just a stellar cast pulling off a really cool story. Um, so five stars for me. I'm done. Go ahead, Tim. What do you got? Wait, did, did you say what it was about? About an American colonel who gets shot down in World War II in Italy and is subsequently captured, and he and the other POWs end up escaping via train. Oh, you said that? Yes, I said it was about an American colonel who gets shot down in World War II over Italy and gets captured, and he and the other POWs eventually escape by train. So, an American colonel, right? And yes. and, and you lost me after that. Hmm, well, I guess you'll have to watch the movie again and... I must, because I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. <laughs> I, I, I really, really did. I mean, this is definitely one of the ultimate prisoner of war action and adventure Hollywood goes to war movies of the 50s and 60s. There are excellent set pieces and well-executed uh, models that were used to execute <laughs> those set pieces. You know, for example, some of the great, I think some of the best use of models in any of these type of adventure war films from the 50s and 60s that actually did age well. Matt, you were absolutely right. The movie did age well, and especially with its special effects and models. Uh, One of the examples I have here is where after they changed the tracks and put their train onto a sliding rail, they then realize, the POWs, when they're on the train, they then realize that they're heading towards a hidden Nazi facility. And all of a sudden, the allies begin bombing the facility and the train is like charging through as the explosions are going all around the train. And it looks really good still. I mean, you can you can tell that it's a model, yeah, but I mean, it's it's still really good. It's not absolutely blatant, though, which is nice. And, you know, in addition to, to good use of models, I mean, there are some wonderful scenes and moments that you really don't see a lot of in newer movies. And it's just absolutely nice. And it goes to show you that movies like this, a lot of these POW movies, I don't know, I just can't get enough of them. They're all really good. Like, The Great Escape is really good. Even with uh, Cool Hand Luke, I know it's not a prisoner of war movie, but it's, you know, about prisoners. <laughs> or even uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence with, um, with, uh, with, with David Bowie is a pretty good one as well. I mean, these are great stories that need to be told and that should be told because a lot of it is based on fact. And especially with this one, it was written by uh, David Westheimer, who was actually a prisoner of war back in in World War II. So it just makes the movie that much more interesting, I think. However, my one flaw, the one flaw that I have with this movie is that I thought that Frank Sinatra was poorly cast. I thought the role could have used a Paul Newman or a Paul Newman type since Newman just has that charisma and likability, you know, and, and he could really carry drama and the struggle as successful as the rest of the leads did in this movie i mean everybody else was great it's just frank sinatra just looked too cool to be in the movie and he actually acted too cool as well like in the great escape which only came out a few years before which is probably why they didn't cast paul newman but like at the end of the great escape you really needed to care about that character due to what happens at the end of the movie. At the end of The Great Escape, you care about him. You're left with this uneasy feeling, not so much with Von Rhein's Express. You're just left with, God, that was a damn good movie. But it felt like it was just missing that extra umph. However, with saying that, this is still a really good movie 
4.75 out of 5. Highly recommend it. Right on. Well, where do you want to go from here, sir? Um, uh, <laughs> I guess if we're going to continue the tradition, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the visit will be next. Sure. Let's do the visit. Okay. Uh, Let's see here. Visit 2015 version, of course, is the American comedy horror film written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Shyamalan, don't be scared. You got to use your head. Go on in. Anyway, uh, let's see here. um, Let's see. We have a film here about a couple of kids who go and see their grandma and grandpa. Uh, because mom wants to go on a cruise with the new boyfriend after dad has apparently left them. Uh, You know, we haven't seen mom and dad for a long time, but uh, sure, let's just go ahead and drop the kids off with them so we can go on a cruise. Uh, The kids are then subsequently uh, put through the ringer by some strange goings-on that turn into basically a house of horror. Uh, run by grandma and grandpa. Um, this is a movie that is, I don't know, reminiscent of when Shyamalan was good and yet still suffers from the fact that it's trying too hard for me. Um, I definitely found it to be just outrageous enough to be funny. I thought that uh, for the most part, the horror aspects were were competently done. But I I don't know. By the time you get to all the reveals in the third act, and then everything kind of has to set itself up for resolution, I felt that it just. It, it was it was going more for broke in terms of throwback humor than letting what it had built up to pay off in a proper way with a style that we can appreciate now that we've had things like Insidious and The Conjuring and what have you, um, and Sinister or what have you. So we've got new stuff that has been working in the last 10 years, and we don't necessarily need to have tropiness revealed in the final act that doesn't, that didn't have to be paid off that way with the buildups that we were given, especially with a pretty um, ridiculous premise, which lends to the humor that can be found laced in the film. At the end of the day though, um, it's a decent enough effort, especially from M. Night Shyamalalalam, that uh, I got to give it three stars. So that's what I did. Three stars. What do you got, Tim? I think the movie is worth it because of where the movie ends up. Though I think after the initial twist or after the twist kind of happens... The movie picks up a little bit of steam, and then it ultimately goes nowhere. Uh, this is a movie that I think is trying to for- do a lot of forced emotion without anything actually organically happening. And I think that's where the found footage gimmick proves to be very proves to be limiting because with the found footage gimmick, 
you know, people are recording it. And whenever the, you know, real character development or depth happen, or actually is supposed to happen or even could happen, you're left with the highlights. And it takes, I think, a very special movie for the highlights to really provide any emotional depth. However, there were some very good ideas that were definitely limited by the found footage gimmick, though it was crafted much better than most of these found footage movies over the past uh, ever, <laughs> I, I, I think. And there were some really cool uh, you know, horror moments that I think could have been a lot better if it was not necessarily expanded or maybe thought out a little bit more. Just There were just too many times that I was left with wanting more, where the terror was building up and where the unexpected was actually what is what was going on. But once I realized, oh shit, you know, I, I maybe I can be scared by something because it's not what I'm expecting. It's over. You know, it, it's, it's the next morning and then it moves on to the next thing. Then a pattern kind of sort of starts and you kind of sort of get used to it and you kind of sort of stop really caring too much and then the bomb of an ending happens. It's not really a bomb, but it's something that is pretty good, and I really, really liked it. It was obviously made by a talented uh, director, but I thought the story and the character uh, development could have used a lot more, other than the kid you know, trying to be a rapper and that being a source of his comedy. Or even the young girl, the young teenager who spouts off witty dialogue and wants to make a documentary. Just that stuff is just kind of annoying to me because uh, it's used so much for young characterizations, you know, trying, trying to make them to be smarter than they should be. Or than I think smarter than really any other teenage girl. And I, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just I've never met a teenage girl that is so into documentaries and that can spout off all, all of this lingo left and right. I mean, it's just, it's overused in movies uh, like this, I think. However, I mean, again, I, I enjoyed it for uh, the most part. I liked it. So three out of five. And that's with me trying not to spill the beans on anything. Three out of five. Awesome. All right. Well, then that leaves us with... Aloha or Aloha, depending on how you want to say that. Uh, 2015 American romantic comedy drama film, written, produced, directed by Cameron Crowe. Stars Bradley Cooper, Emma Stone, Rachel McAdams, Bill Murray, John Krasinski, Danny McBride, and Alec Baldwin. Uh, we have a, a, a military contractor by the name of Brian Gilchrist who is returning to Hawaii uh, to organize a traditional blessing for a new pedestrian gate on behalf of billionaire Carson Welch. Um, there's lots of... He, he's also now... Mr. Gilchrist, played by Bradley Cooper, is uh, has also kind of come back to this life uh, from... What is it? Kabul or something like No, Afghanistan, uh, where some where some shit went down that's alluded to but doesn't get revealed until later on in the movie. And so this is a very important thing that he has to make sure he gets this thing right. He is a signed uh, military liaison played by Emma Stone, uh, young who plays a young lady by the name of Allison Nag Ng. 
right? Ingus? Is that... Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, and... Things are further complicated by uh, having dealings with his ex-girlfriend, Tracy, who is played by Rachel McAdams, and her husband, uh, John Woody Woodside, played by John Krasinski. Um, so, this movie is a movie that I think just... Quite frankly, I think it's about fifteen years too late. Let's go with that. Yeah, I think fifteen's about right. Yeah, this is this is something that I think probably could have done well, um, or at least done better about fifteen years ago. And and let's just take all the whitewashing stuff aside and all the controversy that surrounded casting Emma Stone. Um, because the impetus for Emma Stone's character was actually uh, someone that Cameron Crow Crow knew, who was a uh, white-looking redhead who actually had Hawaiian and Chinese heritage. So, um, for whatever it's worth, let's just take all that aside. This movie is just completely all over the place. I think of the movie um, Seven, Six Days, Seven Nights or something like that, I think is what it was. Uh, with, uh, with Harrison Anne, Ford and Anne Heche. Yeah, and Anne Heche, yeah. It's a movie that, even then, that movie didn't do too well, but at least it was better suited for the time period that it was in. And it's just an all-over-the-place rom-com that is supposed to have dramatic elements to it so that you can um, have a reason for the romance side to carry forward um, and have these and have character development. The problem is, is that the story is just it's just this too neat it's this nice little tied everything's tied into a little bow and oh look everything's just gonna magically work out and it doesn't matter why everything seems to be every major development and plot twist um not twist exactly but plot development and device has to come out of left field instead of happening organically and then let's do it with a whole bunch of weird characters that are not stereotypes exactly but just complete tropes of every character you think you've ever seen in any rom-com ever I just didn't like it. The only thing that made this movie bearable was the basically the caliber of the cast. So I give this one two stars. I didn't like it. And I don't think you will either. Bring us home, Tim. I think instead of Aloha, they should have called this movie Aloha No. Or Aloha Eno. Aloha No, which means how sad. <laughs> Used to express sincere sentiments not sarcasm, or aloha ino, which apparently means how unfortunate, what a pity. (laughs) Because you could tell while watching this movie that this was, I don't want to necessarily say a passion project of Cameron Crowe's, but it, it pertained to a culture that he really likes and that he really wanted to make a movie about that sympathize, not necessarily, I don't want to say sympathizes with, but that he uh, is just really into and that he loves. He loves the folklore 
of the Hawaiian mysticism and whatnot. But when it comes down to it, I think that Cameron Crowe needs to stick with what he knows and does best, which are the smallish films where the core of the film is about relationships and feelings. And I'm not talking about just lovey-dovey relationships, but it could be friendships, you know, just a relationship of some sort and the feelings that kind of go along with it. Aloha doesn't know what kind of movie it is or what it's actually made up of. Is it a romance? Is it a goofball rom-com? There's a love triangle in it. I, I, don't, I don't know. Is it a satire even? You just, you just don't know because there's a lot of different genres and tonal shifts in it um, that really just leave you confused. But intrigued in a way it's trying to do way too much especially with the whole stopping the cgi satellite scenario that happens at the end of the movie you know i mean matt you remember the the cgi satellite at the end of the movie where you can hear the electrical explosions happening in space i i just love the can explosions and electrical sounds that you hear and again it's it's in space, because in space you cannot hear anything. To where, I mean, you, you hear it, and you watch it, and it's just so ridiculous that it felt like it was purposely put there, which then makes the movie that much more confusing. Because again, you don't really understand what's going on. And at that point of the movie, which was super hokey, but it didn't fit the tone of the rest of the movie, you know, and it didn't focus on the core of this story. It's like the, the, the romance and the, the relationship aspect was, was all happening and the movie detours. All right, we got to have, we have to have a major conflict. We have to act upon this conflict and we're going to do it in the hokiest way possible that doesn't fit with the whole Hawaiian folklore that the movie was going, you know, that the movie was uh, pertaining to earlier and just was not great. I mean, on the plus side, there are good actors who are trying to give good performances, as good of performances as they can. And every once in a while, those performances do shine. I laughed twice at things that were genuinely supposed to be funny. But then again, they could have been genuine laughs out of sympathy or even surprise that there was something genuinely funny to Maybe deserved a snicker, but I just went ahead and gave it a full laugh. I don't know. But I, too, don't think that the movie really deserves the criticism of it, of it being racist towards the Hawaiians or it, you know, whitewashed Asians and Pacific Islanders out of a movie that pertains to the love of Hawaii and its culture. But not only is it obvious within the dialogue and within the filming techniques itself that Cameron Crowe has a strong affection for the culture and the people, and the bulk of the movie pertains to the well-being of Hawaii and its culture. So, even with saying those positives, and even with, with, uh, with, with taking sides with Cameron Crowe, with the casting, and how we decide to make the movie, and Sony, and all that stuff, this is still not a good movie, because of the tonal changes, and the movie is just absolutely confused bill murray couldn't save this movie and that that's a big thing right there that is a big criticism if bill murray cannot save your goddamn movie <laughs> and there's really not much more to be said because there 
seriously is not much more to be said about this movie. I give this one 1.5 out of 5. I can't say I absolutely hated it. You just feel bad for the movie afterwards. It's like you had a puppy that you had high hopes for, and it just decided to annihilate your apartment with shit. With shit. It just annihilated your hopes and dreams with shit. So 1.5 out of 5 for Aloha. All right, and that'll bring us to the close of the movies. The movies for next week are going to be Black Mass, Everest, and My Left Foot. Uh, The first two, of course, are in theaters, and this last will be on Netflix. So I believe that does bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can get aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Cameron Crow, I get to say this. I always wanted to tell the story of how Pearl Jam is the story of lightning striking twice, as well as being the flip side of the classic rock tale where great promise ends in tragedy. This is where tragedy begins. Great promise. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.